This Torah class is brought to you by TorahAnytime.com. Today we'll be talking about mind-altering substances. Welcome to Practical Spirituality here at Asia Torah, overlooking the Temple Mount in the old city of Jerusalem. Um, shalom, everyone. Human beings love uh, mind-altering substances from the youngest ages to the oldest ages. People just love that stuff. And uh, one of the things they love about it is, oh, just seeing kids. Like kids, for example, will spin around. Like they love to spin. Adults do not like spinning, but kids will love spinning. And there's actually um, adults that are involved in a spiritual thing called uh, whirling dervishes. You know what whirling dervishes are? It's, it's, it's from India. Uh, you actually whirl around for like an hour until you go into a full trance. There's many things that will bring us to a mystical state, and that's one of them is whirling dervish. Um, anyway, children like to have this. Uh, you guys can move your chairs a teeny bit so I can see you better in the back. Um, anyone who's got this camera in their face, or in my face, just slide over a chair or two. Okay? Yeah, slide it over. I like it. I see you guys perfectly, but you may see the camera in front of me. Okay, um, anyway, but but kids like that. They like swings. Like Adults aren't that crazy about swings, but kids like that, and that's causing a shift in their brains. And they're also, they're kind of like sugar addicts, kids. And they're like constantly going on these sugar fixes. They're like going into sugar highs all the time. Adults and Western adults seem to have no problem with, with boosting their, um, their doing the mind-altering substances of caffeine. They're really big on caffeine. Uh, they, they love that. And they often lose the results, though, because they overdo it. And it doesn't have that same impact that it would have if they would only drink it once a day like I do in the morning. I have my fog lifter every morning. It makes a huge difference. Um, another, one is, uh, another one is alcohol. Uh, adults really like alcohol, which is kind of a funny drug because it's, um, you know, it just, it, it really unhinges you a little bit and, and probably ways that you'd probably better be off, you'd be better off hinged. And, uh, and it also impairs, impairs our... <laughs> ability to drive or walk down a flight of stairs and stuff like that. And, and the majority of violence is actually uh, uh, perpetrated on the influence of alcohol. And it's not so good for the, uh, not so good for the uh, perpetrated as well, the victim, uh, because they may not have, co- their instincts might not have been on so much on, under the influence of alcohol where they could have protected themselves. But human beings just love this stuff. And, uh, and then there's adrenaline junkies. I'm one of those. So some people just love adrenaline. They got a lead foot. I just had to enroll in driving school today. Like I'm, I've been driving since I stole my first car when I was 12, and here I am, like almost 40 years later. I had to enroll in driving school. I called the lady. I'm like, I do not need driving school, and she's like, Well, according to your record, you do. And and I'm like, the speeding ticket was someone else driving my car. <laughs> and the other one was, I forgot to renew my registration, neither of which requires driving school for me. <laughs> I wasn't the guy caught speeding. And she's like, you're going to love it. You, you, Rabbi, you need time off. You, know, you just need four hours just to enjoy someone teaching you how to, how to drive again. And so I enrolled in driving school. Um, 
but the adrenaline junkies are really into mind mind uh, mind alteration, you know, altering our mind state. So I'd, I'd like to just discuss just discuss why for a moment, why we're so into this. I didn't mention the other ones. You know, obviously cannabis is crazy. You know, uh, crazy. It's all the craze. Everyone's really into cannabis. We even have someone here from Seattle, the Big C, which is coffee. No, no, the big C. No, I'm talking about what's on every block. Oh, okay. The stores. Every store, you know, on every block is either craft beer, which is just incredible craft beer in Seattle. Denver's the same. Craft, but at least Seattle begins with a C. Craft beer, <laughs> coffee, and cannabis on every block. Anyway, but they really believe in their alter. Think about it. They're all mind-altering, and they're on every block. You walk, I mean, can't. It's such a fun city to visit because you're just every other store. You're in a different state of mind, you know, as you move along over there. And um, anyway, but those there, that's uh, cannabis amongst many other mind-altering substances that people are into. So the question is why, and I believe the reason why is has to do with contrast. That we we like contrast. And you have your sober state, and then you have your, your uh, mind-altered state. And it just causes certain things. Like, for example, the ability to not take yourself so seriously. That occurs, you know, usually with alcohol, for example. People on alcohol don't take themselves as seriously. That's why you say the stupid things you do when you're, when you're under the influence of alcohol. And you just stop looking good, you know, in, your, in what you're willing to share. On alcohol, your inhibitions have gone down, but you're willing to be more of a fool, and being more of a fool is probably a good thing, considering you're a fool to begin with, and hiding the fact that you're a fool is, you know, just makes you uptight. And so it's it's much better and more fun to be with you when you're willing to take that risk. And uh, to quote Jordan Peterson, he says that all innovation begins with foolishness. And every field of greatness, anywhere you, anyone becomes great, they're going to, you got to make some really dumb mistakes on, on, the, on the path towards your greatness. Um, so so uh, just to tell you a quick story on that is I, I was at the Kotel, and I was there praying, and, and my students from Asia Torah here, you know, Asia Torah is really big on outreach. Like, we really believe in outreach. Like, if you know Aleph, you are now obligated to teach Aleph. You know the letter Bet? You are now obligated to teach the letter bet. Like, you're a teacher the second you know something in Ashatar. Like, we really, it's really built in our culture here, is that you, your obligation is reaching out with whatever it is you know. And there'll be a debate at Ashatar. It's like, the big debate amongst the students is, well, what if I haven't integrated it yet? Meaning, what if I just know it, but I'm not doing anything about it? And Rabbi Weinberg Zatzal, our, our leader of blessed memory, says, even if you haven't integrated it, the guy you're talking to may integrate it. You know, he may be more with, of higher integrity. So for you not to share it means he's going to miss his growth. Because just because you haven't grown, why shouldn't you be sharing this? So he says, share even that which you haven't integrated to the people who may integrate it. Okay. So anyway, we're down at the hotel, and I was kind of minding my own business down there and praying. But my students here were running around, you know, the crowds of birthright kids and everyone and like, running around the crowds trying to find someone to reach out to. Just, they were just looking for a Jew of ignorant background, meaning a Jew who doesn't know a lot and about Judaism. Yeah, we're talking about ignorant of Judaism. 
I don't care if the guy got a PhD in rocket science. <coughs> He's ignorant Jewishly if he didn't study Judaism. Anyway, they're looking for anyone who's ignorant of Judaism, and they find somebody. And they, <laughs> what they do with them? They brought them to me. I thought they were going to do the, 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 the dirty work, you know, of like, you know, enlightening him to all about Judaism. Anyway, so about six of my students show up with this guy. And they're like, Rabbi Glazer, meet this secular Jew. I don't think they even knew his name. You know, and no, if you're going to influence a guy, you know, you've got to at least get his name. So I said, hey, what's your name? He says, his name was, was uh, John. And I'm like, nice to meet you, John. And then I looked at my students. I said, why'd you bring me a Mormon? And my students looked shocked. So did John. And John's like, how'd you know I'm a Mormon? And I said, can you see a Mormon a mile away? He says, how? I said, I can tell that you've never had a drop of alcohol your entire life. He's like, right. And I said, I don't trust people who don't drink alcohol. He's like, why? We should be the most trustworthy. And I say, no, because you don't know how to laugh at yourself. He says, I can laugh at myself. I said, well, grab a prayer book and join that minion over there. Join that group over there. My brother happened to be leading a group of prayers. So I just, I sent the Mormon into my brother's group to go pray with them. So I believe our desire for mind-altering states is is the, um, the uh, a lot of it is the contrast of that mind-altering state, the fool, with the sane, normal you. And to be able to laugh at yourself a little bit, to get more honest, um, to get more true, um, to be able to share share yourself more. Um, in, in Judaism seriously believes in this. We even have a mitzvah to drink wine on various days of the year. Um, first of all, Shabbat. Every Shabbat, we have to alter our state of consciousness. Now, now wine can cause a expansion of consciousness. At least one glass can. And, um, and we are obligated every Shabbat night to drink a full cup of wine. Now, of course, your host is probably going to hand you a thimble of grape juice. So you should just throw a bag at him. Yeah, tell him because the obligation is, why do you think our sages said that to fulfill the mitzvah of Kiddush, you have to drink a full cup of wine? And the answer is, is because you're probably in a more constricted consciousness coming after a week of study. Did I say study? Sorry, I've been hanging out in Jerusalem so long that I said a week of study. You're probably in more of a constricted state of consciousness after a week of work. <laughs> no one works in Jerusalem. So, and, and the, and the, and you're, you're, you're now in Shabbat, which is a totally expanded spectrum, but your mind still, you know, you just got back from work. You've been dealing with, you know, wheeling and dealing all week. And now you're in this expanded place called Shabbos. Our sages say, start with a full cup of alcoholic wine, not grape juice. You need wine. And that maybe will open you up to be in tune with the vibrational energy of Shabbat. Now, if you're already in tune, so go for the grape juice. But a lot of people should be, who are drinking grape juice should definitely be drinking wine. And, uh, and there's... Um, also, there's this interesting thing called uh, Shabbos rage. You heard of road rage, right? 
So there's something called Shabbos rage. Probably none of you have ever felt it. But, uh, but once, you're, once you're married with children and you have your own like little Shabbos uh, cave there where you and your family have Shabbat, there's something that happens inside men. And ladies, watch out for this too. There's something that happens inside men where there's a little bit of rage when they come home Shabbos night. It's strange. It's not so explainable. Although the one explanation that it might be is the Shabbos is the feminine. Shabbos is the receiving. Like, you, you are not acting upon the world on Shabbat. You are refraining from 39 principles of matter, of manipulating the world in some way or another. There's 39 ways to manipulate the world. And that's the masculine when we do that. Even for the ladies during the week, you are doing the masculine when you're manipulating things. Come Shabbat, we are now refraining from manipulating the world. On the opposite, we are now receiving from God, who's the causer in, this, in the case of creation. And so, a lot of men are not that happy about Shabbat coming in. Many men feel emasculated by Shabbat. And they just, they, men want to make their mark. They want to mark every lamppost they walk by as a territory. And it pains men, for example, that no one will remember us a hundred years from now. And that's, that's pretty scary that no one's going to remember you. And that's, that's even with a contribution. Meaning, like, having a contribution, like, for example, I, I have a very powerful contribution. Um, at least the feedback seems to say so. And, but my heart says so as well. I feel instinctually I have a lot to contribute. And the, no one's going to remember me a <laughs> hundred years from now. I mean, unless I figure out something really crazy, you know, but, but whatever I'm doing, which is a hell of a lot crazier than anything you guys are doing at this point. So I suggest you get crazier, which I'm always trying to motivate people to get people get crazier um, in their lives. And the reason why I want you to be crazier isn't so someone remembers you 100 years from now, because you'd have to be darn crazy to get remembered 100 years later. Notice that no one, probably no one in this room can raise their hand and tell me something that their own family member did 100 years ago. And it's your own family. You know, you might know a name. If they wrote a book, maybe you know its title. If you're a good great-great-great-great-great-great-great-great-grandchild, you read it. But no one's going to remember us. Like, we just have to get over that and live for the moment, which is Shabbat, and just be there and receive. And there's a certain rage men get when they come home that night. And don't forget, they, where are they coming home from? Where are men coming home from on Shabbat night? From shul. And can you get anything more, anything more emasculating than synagogue? You know? I mean, just to get the thing started, they need 10 men. You could be a CEO of a Fortune 500 company, and you walk through the door, and they're like, seven. Who are you calling seven? Do you know who you're talking with? And, and, but the, the answer is, yeah, seven. Sit down and open up a prayer book, because we're going to get started as soon as ten walks in. Yeah? And meaning you just don't matter in synagogue. You, you, I mean, you matter because everyone matters, but in the, in the genre called synagogue, you're part of now community. You're, in commu- you're wearing your community hat. You know, and by the way, our Kabbalists say, the Vilna Gon says something amazing, one of the great Kabbalists. He says that, that if, it's, if on Rosh Hashanah you were blessed, the first day of the year you were blessed to have life, I mean, you're going to live this year. 
You know how we have that who's going to live, who's going to die prayer. And it, and the answer is you're going to live, but God needs to like rip out a section of the Jewish people. He's going to like harvest some souls with, God forbid, a terror attack or something like that. You lose your individual blessing when you're in synagogue or you're in a bus or you're here or you're there or you're anywhere. Anywhere you're in a crowd. You lose your... You understand? Like they, That's a heavy Kabbalistic statement that it doesn't matter that you were blessed for life when you're wearing your community hat. <laughs> I hope I'm not like making people think twice about going to synagogue. It was already bad. You know, just having to like like kind of tuck in your wings, you know, because you have such unique wings, and we all do. But, you know, you got to tuck them in when you go to synagogue. And it's quite fun. And not to mention, you got to bend over. You know, you got to like, you literally got to just like bow down. Totally. And you'll notice most people, you know, when they get to Elenu, for example, they're like, that's about all that you get from these guys. Because they're like, no man's going to go 90 degrees for God. You know, the Judaism's just there to like strip us of our masculine ego. They're just here to strip the alpha male out of you. It's what Judaism's all about. And in fact, of course, Jewish law says what? Give a token this or go full like yogic 90. Which one do you think the Jewish law says? Full yogic 90 degree angle, man. You're supposed to just go bend in half. Just bend in half before God. And the, and the Kabbalists click on that law. The law is bend in half. You know what the Kabbalists say there? They say that if it weren't for the fact that this prayer is on your feet, you should be flat on your face. So while you do your, your 90 degree, have in mind you're flat on your face. It's just that it would be hard to get up and be in the same spot. So, so when you're doing a standing prayer like like the silent prayer or Elenu, and you do your 90 degree, have in mind you're flat on your face. But I suggest for all you guys who are somewhat showing up in prayers or do it regularly, to just practice that. Practice that. Do your 90 degrees. You can do it alone if it's embarrassing. You know, do it in your bedroom or something. You know, and, uh, Just see if you can do it. See if you can prostrate before God. You know, it's not an easy thing for a man. And so there's a certain amount of rage. So that might have something to do with the wine on Shabbos night. It's like, get the wine in there. Get the wine inside him. In my house, not because of the rage, but not only do I do kiddish on the wine, while the kids are drinking the wine, and my, my wife's drinking the wine, and, you know, if we have guests, which is rare, but we have, they're drinking the wine, guess what I'm drinking? Craft beer craft beer and not just one meaning there's times where I have uh, four, five, six, seven craft beers lined up already poured in order of hoppiness <laughs> because you can't drink a hoppier beer I'm sorry, a less hoppy beer after a hoppier beer because it just, hoppy beers just like pulverize your taste buds and so there's a spot there or in front, wherever you want okay, so Poppy beers just pulverize your taste buds, and so you have to build up on the hoppiness as you go. Yo, what's up? What up? Hey, welcome. welcome. There's a couple seats up here. If you want to flank, uh, maybe you come to this one, and you can flank around Yo. to this one. Sounds great. What's happening? 
Yeah, you can come this way. Yeah, you can come through here. I don't care. Just say hi when you walk by the camera and watch the cable. <laughs> oh, is that a shirt that you were at one of my shirt? I spoke at night? Yeah, yeah. I don't remember speaking at night. I I speak much better at night, usually. I'm a night person. I'll let you know. In fact, the later it gets, the more energy I get as the night goes on, which is really horrible for getting a good night's sleep. <laughs> it was so bad. Last night, I started going to bed at 12.30. I fell asleep at 3.06. <laughs> and part of my problem is half my, half my students and clients from my company are, are in America. And they're finally off work when it's bedtime. So all of a sudden, WhatsApp's just like, help! And I'm like, okay. And how much better you go to bed? How much better do you sleep knowing you helped someone before you went to sleep? And I had two two uh, jumpers yesterday. So so that like got even more serious. So the one I don't take very seriously. The other one, a little more serious. Um, now, where were we at? Hoppy beers. <laughs> By the way, I don't drink the six beers. I take a sip off each beer and pass it to the guests. I send it around the table, and then we all just kind of share germs <laughs> as everyone gets to taste each of the beers. And I try to make sure that those beers are Israeli brewed beers, which are some of the best beers in the world. And they, they, um, I love watching the new guests to Israel just saying like. I can't believe it. And then they try the next one, and they're like, I can't believe it. And then they try the next one, and they're like, I can't believe it. And then if they really just keep screaming, I can't believe it, that means they must have smoked up before Shabbos came in. <laughs> I mean, the beer is good, but it's not that good. Okay. So, anyway. the um, Yeah, so watch out for Shabbos rage. Anyway, but we, we, like, to, we like altered states of consciousness, and... Um, and uh, when it comes to like really tuned in in Judaism, the uh, the ultimate al- what's the ultimate altered state of consciousness? The ultimate altered state of consciousness is to go into a mystical trance. Going into a mystical trance is like kind of for many uh, for many substances that is the goal. There's many substances out there that the goal is for you to have a mystical experience. Well, that is the goal in Judaism. Judaism's ultimate goal is that you would have a full-on mystical experience, a first-hand mystical experience, a mystical experience that you could never explain. If the seas were ink and the forest, the trees in the forest were quill, and the land of the earth were, were paper, you would never finish. You'd run out of ink, quills, and paper before you could have explained that one moment. That's a mystical experience. And we're all, we're all, you should be so determined to have that. You know why you should be so determined? Doesn't that sound frustrating? If you were that determined to have that, wouldn't that be frustrating? Because if you didn't have it, no. If you're so determined to have it, you will figure out what's in the way. And you'll get to work on yourself. Because if you're not having it, there's something in the way. It's not that, God's not the one with the problem, guys. God's not having any problem giving mystical experiences to people. He's, they're actually for free. They're fully available. I could even produce one for you right now. But we're not going to go there. Just because we're supposed to be doing a whole other class. But you can have your mystical experience for sure. If you're not having it, 
don't point your finger at God. And if you do point your finger at God, it's a three to one. Where are the other three fingers pointing? Everyone say right back at you. Can we do that again? Where are the other three fingers pointing? Right back at you. Right back at you. That there's probably something in the way of it. And it could be as simple as the fact that if you had it, you'd have to change your life. Right? If you had your full mystical experience, you'd have to realign things, wouldn't you? And so, maybe that's why you're not having it. So, they, whatever, there's a lot of reasons why that we could look at that are getting in the way of our mystical experience. Yeah? Is having one of those mystical experiences, uh, I guess, on a form of substance? So, the question was, is, is that... Well, yeah, you, If it's on a if it's on a uh, substance, that's an interesting question. Is it less of a mystical experience if you cheated by eating a mushroom? <laughs> no, no, no. It's just as mystical an experience. Um, it may lack context, you know, like meaning meaning you you go for the mystical experience in Judaism, you know exactly where to go with that for the rest of your life. You have a mystical experience on a mushroom. You wake up the next day. <laughs> Like, what do I do? Eat another? You know, like, <laughs> how many days can you keep eating mushrooms and having your mystical experience? So, it, it would lack context. And that's why you'll notice in the therapeutic world of psychedelic, um, psychedelic uh, medicines, the, um, the, they will always say that it should be buttressed by... Sorry about that, everybody. Yeah, good. Um... I thought you guys had like an amazing question. You're just telling me that I'm getting a phone call. Okay, so <laughs> thank you. Um, yeah. What do you mean that you can give us a mystical experience? Oh, meaning we could we could do like a quick mindfulness exercise that would short circuit the the um, kind of your the overstimulation of your thinking, such that it would go offline for a moment, and in that moment we could all connect to a, a really much bigger consciousness that that you would you would be breathing into a space that's mystical by nature and I do it a lot we're just not doing it right now okay yeah well God's the one who created the mushroom so you can't say there's that big a difference but it's not a Hashem that your question is it's Judaism Judaism is a path to of Judaism is a path of enlightenment, of mystical consciousness. That's what it is. I know all of you are looking at me like, huh? My rabbi didn't say that when I was growing up. That's because Judaism became a religion. It became a religion. They killed it. Okay, They killed our Judaism. And Judaism was turned into one of the world's religions. It's like, it's like when I'm at JFK and I want to pray, there's a, you know, there's a there's a what do you, what do they call those things? If you ask the Gentiles where it is, it's a a chapel. chapel. Yeah, where's the chapel? And when you're walking along, you know it's JFK, so it's like all the different chapels of all the religions, and you know it's it doesn't make any sense that Judaism, you know, because if you look at it from a distance, you're just like, okay, there's the different religions, and there's Judaism on the end over there, another religion. Meaning they basically killed it for us. Now, by the way. I'm not here to blame cler Jewish clergy at all. I mean, let's see you dedicate your life to Jewish continuity. They're only trying to keep us going. So, by all means, they get nothing but kudos from me. 
but I understand where they fell and 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 why people are coming to my class and they're not going to theirs is because is because Jewish continuity has to be at this point meaning meaning maybe before the 60s it doesn't have to be this um, they were able to create more or less a conveyor belt education system of Judaism but but really spiritually and even historically before 200 years ago 200 years ago was the break into religion but historically and the last 200 years it became a religion but since the 1960s it either touches you in the depth of your heart or it's irrelevant you understand that you guys get it raise your hand if you if you get that it's either going to touch you in a way that is is transformational for you or it's not relevant raise your hand if that means something to you okay and the rest of you are religious <laughs> i mean tell tell me who's more religious um, raise your hand if you've had a Jewish, uh, anyone here has had a mystical experience in their Jewish uh, life, like they've had it. Okay, okay. so many of you. So now if I take an example of uh, Josh, right? I just met Josh. Josh, um, do you like candles on Hanukkah? Yeah. You do. And is that a religious move or is that a move that's informed by having had a mystical experience? Where are you at? All you have to do is think back to December last year. Right. When you were lighting those candles, were you part of that? Or did the mystical thing happen after your Hanukkah? I, I think it was a bit of both. I think it's hard to pin down one. Uh-huh. Uh, like there's, a, there's a religious aspect that a Jew lights Hanukkah. Like growing up, it was something we, my family would do all the time. Which is what? Religion. Right. Yeah, they're doing things without a reason because of a narrative of a particular group of people is called religion. Whereas the mystical experience and now lighting Hanukkah candles is that a religious move? That's not a religious move. You know what that is? That is a natural progression. That is a natural progression of an expression of of a connectivity to you know the the ultimate which you know we don't even know what it is but it's some connection to the ultimate that I'm now going to I'm now going to like squeeze it down I'm going to squelch it down to this lighting of this menorah like I'm going to I'm going to light a menorah with this it's more of a tradition it's just no, tradition's a religious one meaning tradition means it's been done before by others, my my parents, my grandparents. That's religion. When you've had a mystical experience, now you light Hanukkah candles from a very different perspective. Now, you know what you know. It's a great way of knowing the difference. Is if you were not feeling it. I mean, do we always feel connected? What if you're feeling totally disconnected, and it's Hanukkah night, third candle, and you're feeling disconnected, and you just had an argument with your wife. And your kid's diaper leaked through onto your khaki pants. I'm using that word pun intended. <laughs> In your khaki pants. And <laughs> and, and, your, and your wife's like, time to light Hanukkah, dear. You know, are you going to light or are you gonna not going to light? 
what are you going to do? You're going to light those candles, because, and that's going to be a move of religion or a move of, of a mystical expression. Which one? Religion. And that's fine. There's nothing wrong with that. It's just that when Judaism gets relegated to only that, and it's not because I've been touched personally, that's where it loses its relevance. And of all your lighting that week, of the eight candles, which is the one that was the least relevant to that person? The third candle. Now, you should know something amazing is that do you think God holds a special place in his heart for someone who lights a Hanukkah candle when he's not feeling it? What do you think? Yes. Is there a special place in his heart? There is a special place. And do you know we have a term for it? You know what it's called? I'll, I'll give you the Hebrew one first. It's called Evid. Anyone want to translate Evid for me? Slave. And why would God hold a special place in his heart for slave? Because you guys, does anyone here have a positive connotation of slavery? No, not at all. But there is something special in the heart of God for slave. You know what it is? You see, whenever you do anything for anyone, you're getting something. Unless you're a slave. When you're a slave, I mean, you're getting something. You're not getting whipped, I guess. You know, you're not getting, you know... God knows what people might do to a slave, although in Judaism there's laws how to treat a slave, but in the rest of the world, slavery was a very cruel thing. You know, the funny thing is that we once put all the rules you have, if you have a slave in Jewish law, against life of a kibbutznik, you would choose slave any day over life on kibbutz. But again, everyone who likes, uh, like you get these atheists in the in the dark web, that uh, that uh, the intellectual dark web, they love like, like, Sam Harris loves to use slavery as the example of how, like, archaic Judaism is and stuff. You know, when he's, like, you know, mouthing off about his atheism. And, uh, but meanwhile, that guy doesn't know his ass from his elbow when it comes to Jewish law regarding slaves. And if he did know, he would choose slavery over joining a kibbutz. I mean, you can't even eat before your slaves eat. Your slaves aren't allowed to work on Shabbos. It brings up a bigger subject of what does it mean to have your handiwork owned by another human being. That's a subject that's worth talking about, and I'd be happy to, to discuss the negative side of that. And so would our Torah. And you want to know something? If, if a slave ever was supposed to be freed, if a Jewish slave was ever to be freed, why? Because he finally worked off the money he owed? Because what is a Jewish slave? A Jewish slave is a slave that owed money and didn't have it. And so now his handiwork belongs to that guy. But that guy has to feed him and house him and take care of him. And it's like crazy. Like, I'd rather just forget it. You know, like, I release the money you owe me. But let's just say that it was a lot of money and it's worth taking care of this guy and getting his handiwork. Let's just say that. But no matter what year... He joins you. It could be the sixth year he joins you. Comes that seventh year, what happens to your slave, even though he owes you a good four years worth of work? Seventh year is the sabbatical year. He goes free. And if he chooses not to go free, there's a ceremony that takes place where you bring him to the door. I forget why the door exactly. And you take a piercer and you pierce his ear. You pierce his ear against the door. I guess you have to have a backdrop when you pierce a guy's ear. But, you know, it's the door. 
Now, how do you get a guy's earlobe against the door? I have no idea. But uh, I guess you twist it and put it against the door and whang. You know, I guess I'm sure we can figure this out. There's something about this guy now being stuck to the door, at least until you get him off. You know, but you pierce his ear. You know what it is about the door? Oh, does anyone here know about the door? Well, it's your, it's your, oh, maybe it's the, oh, a hooven nails it, nails it, because it says specifically, it says the doorpost, well, what's on the doorpost of the mezuzah? And what's in the mezuzah? Shema Yisrael. And what's Shema Yisrael? Is when every individual in the world's freed, because you realize that all there is is God, which means all of this, okay, we're going a little mystical here, all of this is a figment of God's imagination. Think about it, if all there is is God, this is a digital simulation. You don't actually exist. All that exists is God. And you're just distracted by your brain all the time. But really, all there is is God. And if all there is is God, but you've been granted consciousness, you are free. And the person who heard that at Sinai chooses to be indentured to another human being, boom, right through the ear. The guy who heard that, boom, right through the ear. And this is why you'll notice observant Jews, it doesn't matter if you already did it because you didn't know better, but observant Jews don't have, Jewish men <laughs> don't have ear piercings. Observant Jewish men do not pierce their ears. And that's why. Because of this, this little ceremony, which is a commandment in the Torah that to, to pierce the ear of a guy who wants to stay indentured to another human being. Because he heard the words that free us. And he chooses to not be free. Aren't we supposed to be talking about mind-altering substances here? A bunch of questions. So that guy in the back was first. And I got Mystical kind of means also uh, beyond nature, which is miracle, miraculous. Right, right. Go on. If, if you're taking these substances, isn't that kind of a way of saying, like, I'm not waiting for your miracles, God, I'm going to make my own? Hmm. You know? Kind hmm. of like, I'm, I'm, I'm taking this for the sole purpose of experiencing the world in the way I want it. Yeah. I'm not waiting for you to do something, so I see it from Yeah, so I, I don't know if they can hear on my lapel mic, but you're saying... Isn't that a way, someone doing it through substances instead of Judaism is saying, like, I don't want to wait around for this. Not to mention the fact that, like, like how dedicated in Judaism do you have to be to start having mystical Jewish experiences? Probably a lot more dedicated than anyone in this room is. So, you understand, like, that's a pretty serious dedication. Not to mention you're going to need a bunch of more details. Like, for example, you need a mentor who's achieved this to show you the way. You know, if you know, if you have a mentor who knows a bunch of Jewish laws, but but he's never had an, a mystical experience, he cannot help you get to your mystical experience. You get that? He knows a lot of Jewish law. You can call him your rabbi when you have a question. You do not expect having a mystical experience under him. You know, as as your rabbi. You get that? So that's why we distinguish the rabbi and rebbe. because a rebbe is someone who can get you to a mystical experience, whereas a rabbi can answer questions. Now, the 
Um, and could it be said that I'm not that someone taking that substance is saying I'm not waiting around for you, God? But I'm, I, if I have a way to go straight to the punch, so I'm going straight to the punch. So I, I think God would say, "Kola kavod," you know, like like thanks for having a little courage, because it takes. By the way, you should know that even though it sounds like the shortcut, uh, raise your hand if you know what I'm talking about. That having these mystical experiences using substances takes about every last ounce of courage you have. Raise your hand if you know that what I'm talking about on that. I mean, it's just going to take every ounce of courage. In fact, the likelihood of you having a bad trip, which is just a, the worst stage of hell one could ever get in, in their life, the likelihood of you having a bad trip is probably going to be because you're so darn nervous to go drop into that world. Or, I don't know if you'd call it drop in or rising up to it, but but it is scary. It is scary, and you want to know something. The, the grandmaster of all psychedelic experience, Terence McKenna, he says, Oliver Sholem, Terence McKenna says, <laughs> says, um, he says, I mean, this guy, this guy's like a human laboratory. I mean, there's no one's had more psychedelics than this man. And he would, every time he did it, he would do it with a heroic dose and then add cannabis to it. <laughs> He'd take a heroic dose. Like a dose that would, like, you would not come out okay, probably, on such a dose. And, uh, and then add cannabis to it. And this is what he did regularly. And, I mean, as regularly as you could, because obviously you, you'd need to take off from that a couple months after such a thing. But he would do it every couple months. And he, uh, but you know what he said? He said, anyone who would get involved in such a thing and is not scared out of his mind is crazy. <laughs> That's him. He said that. You know, I mean, you, you go into there with fear. And you know what the likelihood of having a bad trip is? The time you take it, not afraid. So the fear could cause the bad trip or going in with ego. Like, I, I got this. I can hack it. That's when God's going to teach you a major lesson. You know, you're about to have your, your, you know what, kicked so hard for the next, you know, several hours that you're going to be just praying you had made it. You're going to be begging you had wished you'd made another decision that day for how to spend that day. <laughs> so, it, yeah, it's not, it's not something to be taken lightly. But in answer to your question, we have to ask ourselves another question, and that is that why did these things that were always relegated to tribes in jungles, African jungles, you know, Indian jungles. Uh, uh, where's that place where they used to send people in Russia? Siberia. Siberia, Ukrainian forests where tribes existed. Um, you know, the South American Amazon jungle. Like, you got to ask yourself, why did God have these things show up at rock concerts all of a sudden in New York City? <laughs> Knowing full well that Jews would probably be attending that concert. You understand? Like, there's not a joke. And not to mention the fact that this is, this is a piece of trivia that a lot of people don't know. This is something really fabulous. Is that um, after Passover till Shavuos, there's a count of seven weeks. 
and those are very mystical weeks because the sevens are the are the actual ways of creation. So it's flow, structure, beauty, perseverance, um, focus, connection, and recipient. Otherwise known as Cheskevur, Teferis, Netzachod, Yisod. So we count those seven days. So each day of the seven, we count those seven weeks. Each day is one of the seven within the seven. You understand? So the sixth day of the sixth week was the six-day war. And guess what happened on that day as well? Well, first of all, the whole entire mystical tradition of of Jews returning to Judaism began on that day. A lot of people don't realize that the massive return towards Judaism that's taken place, what's known as the Bali Tshuva, the BTs, which are now every community has is full, filled with Bali Tshuva, that had a date. Did you know it had a date? It had a date, and that date was 1967. I don't know the English date, but it was the sixth day. It was the sixth day of the sixth sphera was the Sixth Day War. What is the Sixth, by the way? The Sixth, I said before, it's connection, but the literal translation is foundation. Yesod means foundation, like this building has a foundation. Well, guess what happened on that day? On that day, the Temple Mount, which is right behind me over here, you're not going to be able to see it on camera, but that Temple Mount over there, that we were relegated to, we're like outside Jaffa Gate, this is when the Jews got back their, at least their east-west biblical property, and got back the Temple Mount, which means the Temple Mount, which is where the Gold Dome is, under that Gold Dome is a stone. Guess what that stone is called? It's called the Evan Shesia or Evan Shetia. And what does that mean? It means the foundation stone. It's the foundation of the whole creation. That is the foundation of this world. And so on the foundation, the day called Foundation of Foundations, we get back our access to the foundation stone to be used at a later time. So they just kept the, uh, you know, the giant, like, uh, catered, chicken roast underneath that gold dome there. Yeah, so it's still it's it's waiting underneath that gold dome for us. At the right time, it will be revealed. On that day, LSD you can come in. Come on in. On You can come in. On that day, that was a day that was marked. You have to check Google for this, but on that day, that was the marked day where LSD left the laboratories, because LSD was a, considered one of the most promising drugs in the psychiatric world. Only today, in 2008, when they decided to get it back inside because the other psychiatric drugs have, have so badly failed us um, that they've decided now to bring back psychedelics for, for treatment. And, uh, and things are going to be FDA approved by the end of this year even. Um, and there, there's already cities that are refusing to prosecute now. For, for these substances, uh, Denver being one of them, Oakland, California being another, and it's you know this is all coming to a theater near you, but the <laughs> and you don't even have to go to the movies to watch the film. So anyway, the uh, on that day was when was the biggest leak of the compound LSD, which was only being used psychiatrically, was the day it leaked into the streets. And I even had a rabbi here who was, who was a personal rabbi of mine, a mystic for sure, um, who, he was 18 years old, a senior in high school, on that day in Greenwich Village, Lower East Side of Manhattan, where he was going to high school. And he said that it was of the most mystical days ever. That day moved the mindset of humanity. And that's why I was saying earlier to everyone in this room, 
And everyone watching this, I was saying earlier that that was the day where Judaism from then on will either be a mystical experience you've had, nothing to do with substances. It just, it ushered in that you yourself can have a mystical experience. It's not something you read about. It's not just something in a story or folklore or, or, or legends. It's something that you have. You have mystical experiences. And from that day on, when educators thought they could just keep you in the system without your having been touched deeply <coughs> by God, however it is, whether it's through Judaism, whether it's through a substance, but it got to the point where if you haven't been touched deeply, it's not that relevant to you. From that point on. Before that point, okay, you know, I'm part of this community, this is what we do. After that point, it's got to touch you. It's got to touch you personally, which is exactly what happened in those days. Now, you should know the Balchuva movement began here on that day because what happened was Israelis everywhere realized the miracle. Now, Israel's, Israelis have short-term memory. So, meaning, even the biggest atheist in Tel Aviv was like this, like looking at heaven, just going like... You know, like they were like... The, the biggest atheist in Tel Aviv was like flat on his face before God for the miracles of the Six-Day War. But, you know, they went right back to their thing, you know. But the, but the young people who were there, the soldiers who were there, who saw firsthand the miracles in combat, the pilots that saw, you know, that, that, the, that when they were going to their next site and were able to wipe out whole entire fleets <coughs> before they could even get off the ground, and they just saw how, how we doubled our territory, we got back to our east-west biblical borders all in six days with almost no casualties. The miracles of that day, but they're miracle after miracle after miracle after miracle, like crazy stuff. And every soldier you'll meet who was fighting during the Six Day War will tell you his own wild story. I mean, I heard a firsthand story of a guy driving his Jeep, racing as fast as he could away from a, a did I say Jeep? Driving a tank, racing as fast as he could away from uh, uh, being chased. And all of a sudden, he saw his a picture of an he saw a, a, an old man in Talis and Tefillin, like just got in harm's way. So he just he couldn't kill him, couldn't kill him. He turned his jeep suddenly after a long straightaway, just turned his jeep, wound up crashing. I don't know what happened to him, but uh, but the the jeeps that couldn't turn in time that were chasing him blew up there. They all were blown to smithereens there. When he went to visit his grandmother. When he went to visit his grandmother like a week after the Six-Day War, he saw that man. That man was, was on her wall in a picture, a little picture of her grandfather, of her father. And that's, that's why he turned his Jeep. He didn't, I mean, he didn't know it was a picture of that. He just saw an old man in Tefillin. When you're driving a Jeep... You know, driving a tank full speed in hot pursuit of the, the enemy pursuing you. You know, that's, that's why he turned the tank. It was not to knock out this Jew there. And it turned out to be his, his, his own, his own great-grandfather. Now, the... Anyway, but this started the Balchuva movement in Israel, which is a massive movement, way bigger than the West... We're used to, like, Western English-speaking Balchuvas. 
but the Israeli movement's way bigger than the than the Western movement. Yeah, I know you would never notice that walking around Tel Aviv, but as you get around the country, you meet a lot, a lot, a lot of Israeli Balanchuva. <laughs> it's a huge movement here, and um, uh, yeah. So um, yeah, yeah. So I, I have a question and perspective, like your opinion on this. So I think that wait before you ask. I just want to mention that that it may sound like I'm advocating this. Does it sound like I'm advocating it? Yes. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, and what do you answer, Josh? I'm advocating for Not advocating for it at all. Why would you think I was advocating for it? What would make you think that? What? <laughs> maybe we want to do it. No, we want you to be. Uh, maybe you want me to be advocating for it. What was I doing instead? What was I doing? I was definitely, I'm telling you right now, I don't advocate it, and I wasn't advocating for it. And the majority of people who email me after these classes who say, should I do it? What do you think I say? No. no. <laughs> so, sometimes the answer is an unequivocal yes, but usually it's no. And the, now, um, by the way, when would be the yes? I'll give you an example of a yes last week. Someone who suffered uh, suffered serial molestation. I'm saying that nicely. A female as a child suffered this, and I'm saying it all very nicely. And she's now about sixty thousand dollars worth of therapy later. She's now in her, her almost thirty eight years old. She's thirty seven, and she's getting really tired, really really tired of getting that out of her bones. Because this is a, th- that kind of affect, it's called affect. You maybe don't know that term, but that's called affect is when trauma hits the, the cells. And there's no greater therapy for cellular trauma than, than psychedelic plant medicines. And, the, and so that's just the, th- those are the facts. And for me not to advocate for that woman would be just the same as being cruel. And so there's no blanket answers for such things. But the answer was I was not advocating at all. The, quite the opposite. I, I was, I, all I'm doing is, is sharing level-headed information about, about subjects, which is all I'm ever doing, is trying to give a fair share um, of, of these subjects. And also you should know how divine it is, by the way, because the materialist atheists on the intellectual dark web, how are they going to explain you know, how are they going to explain mystical experiences induced? Well, they tell you, well, it's, it's in the brain. It's in the brain. Maybe it's all going on in the brain, except go meet anyone who's had it. They will tell you things about the divine that they just shouldn't know. But they know, and they, know, they just never studied it, but now they know it. Uh, another example is um, I've, I've met mystics from jungles of the world. And I, you know, because I'm a musician, I've been in situations where I got to hear them sing. You know, the tribe, tribal songs. But not just any tribal songs, tribal songs when they're on their medicines, the, you know, the mystical medicines. And, the, and guess what's in the song? Every single syllable of the song is either the letter Yud, He, Vav, or Aleph, which is just two Yuds and a Vav. Every single syllable. And I actually asked a mystic, I said to him, those are, those are all the letters of the names of God. 
And he's like, well, I know that. How did you know that? And meaning he doesn't know the letters. You would, he just knows the sounds. And he's like, I, I, he said, how did you know that? And I sh- opened up a prayer book and, you know, on my f- smartphone, and I just showed him, like, hello, that's the yud sound, and that's the vav sound, and that's the hey sound, and that's the aleph. And, and I said, where did you learn these songs? And he said that the, that the medicine taught us. The medicine itself taught them. They were taught by the medicine. So, good luck being a materialist atheist and explaining how mystics on psychedelic potions somehow come out with Hebrew for their songs, where every single le- syllable of every single song is names of God. Which immediately brought me the question of, am I allowed to sing it? <laughs> I'm serious. Can I, if I knew the song, could I sing it? You know, and so a rabbi answered me. He said, this syllable you could say, that syllable you could say, that syllable you can't say, that one you can't say, this one you can say. And he went through it, and he like explained what you could and couldn't say, which kind of made me throw the whole thing out, because, you know, what am I going to be sitting there singing part of a song? You know, what am I going to be singing every third syllable of a song? You know, so I, I'm just not going to be singing that song. Okay, I see a bunch more questions, but it's 4.20. So I guess you can ask me privately. I realize I need a much longer format when I speak. Um, Rabbi, is there a chance I can switch to the last hour of the day? Remember we used to do this with that famous Rabbi, Dan Katz. His class just went into the night. Remember that? I'm not asking him to do that. But I, I definitely realize I need more, more time every class, but like way more time. Okay, um, everybody, our next class is? Oral and written law. Oral and written law by one of our senior lecturers, Rabbi Ellis, who will be speaking next. You've just experienced another Torah class brought to you by TorahAnytime.com.